Let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1 this morning. We started our study of Acts last week. We'll be continuing in that. Acts chapter 1. We saw last week how the apostles had been instructed by Jesus to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And there's about a nine-day period between the ascension and when Pentecost actually takes place in the coming of the Spirit. And so the question we have this morning is, what did they do with that time between there? Most of them were from Galilee, so Jerusalem wasn't their home. But here they are in Jerusalem just sort of waiting. And so we find out today how they spent their time. And so that will be the focus of our text. There will be really two parts to it today. The first is the apostles' return. And what we see is that they actually spend much of their time praying. That's what they do. So we're in chapter 1. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So after his ascension, Jesus obviously commanded the apostles to not return to their homes, which would be Galilee for most of them, but instead to go back to Jerusalem. And he said they're to wait there to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so our our passage actually opens with them doing that. You'll see the text here says that they were about a Sabbath day's journey. The the Jewish leaders had these restrictions on what you could do on the Sabbath, including things like you couldn't, if you had a mat that you would sit on, you couldn't move it more than a few feet at a time because that would be considered work, you know. Well, the other thing they couldn't do is really travel. So they had a specific distance that they could go on the Sabbath that wasn't considered work. And it's somewhere between probably a mile and two miles or so. And that's about the distance they actually had to go here. Um, but if you were a loyal Jew, you were permitted to go just a short distance on the Sabbath. And so here they are. And I don't know why Luke felt the need to mention that, but um, he did. So they went back to Jerusalem. Took them about half a day to get there. And um, as they entered the city, all 11 of them actually retreated back to the upper room, it says, where they had been staying. Now again, they're probably renting a place because it wasn't their home. We know that um, the, the, most of the homes in that area had um, rooftops and then sometimes had additional rooms and, and they referred to as the upper room as where Jesus and the disciples met before. Some question whether or not this is the same place they, they had the Last Supper. It's not real clear, and I don't know that it matters a whole lot if it really was. But they basically all go back there, and there's some others that joined them as well. It mentions the 11 here, Judas obviously, there's one Judas here, but it's not the Judas that betrayed Jesus. Um, So the 11 are back there in this room, but it also mentions a few others. Notice that it mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus. It mentions Jesus' brother, he actually had how many of them? Anybody know how many brothers Jesus had? There were a total of four. James, Joseph, Simon, and then another one named Judas. Matthew tells us that in Matthew chapter 13. It also mentions um, a group called the women. And we don't have much information on that, except that um, 
there was a group that was referred to elsewhere as just plain women in Luke chapter 23 and 54 that witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. These women were actually composed of a few individuals we do know. Mary Magdalene, you remember who she was. Um, Joanna, there's another Mary mentioned, the mother of James. And so it's likely that the women here were the same women that... um, had kind of followed a small group that had followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. Some of them had been healed. Some of them had had demons cast out of them. And they were faithful to Christ. And so they traveled with him, and it mentions them at the crucifixion when he was there. And they're still here now as a part of that. And so what we really have here are a group of the 11 apostles, um, Jesus' family, Mary, his brothers, and probably his sisters too were, were likely included with that. Um, with the mention of the women, but then another small group of women who were who had been faithful to him. And so here they are, they're all back in Jerusalem, and they're all in one room together, it says, in a, in a place called, or in, the, the, in a house, in the upper room. And Luke tells us what their primary purpose in meeting was. In verse 14 it says, These were all with one, one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. So the first thing we see here is that it says that they're all of one mind. Your version may say they were all of one accord, or it may say that they were joined together. But the word that's actually used here refers to the single-mindedness. Um, but it implies more than just being in agreement. It's one thing if you know, two people agree on something doesn't necessarily mean they're of one mind, because the concept of biblical one-mindedness has to do more with purpose as well. It means you think alike, but it also means you have the same purpose, the same goals, the same drives and desires. And so Luke here says that they were of one mind as they came together. It it signifies basically a genuine unity or a purpose when it comes to how one thinks, what they have for their goals and their motivations. Now what's interesting about this is that if you notice it says that they were all of one mind and continually devoting themselves to prayer. And so there's a link between their one-mindedness and what they were praying for and praying about. And that kind of gets to their purpose, why they were there, what they were thinking. This was something that was pretty common with the apostles in the early church. In fact, Acts chapter 15 tells us the apostles were also unified or one mind in their decision-making. Something that they, when they, when it came time to make decisions, they got together, they prayed about it, they made decisions together as a group. In fact, we see that when, um, when they begin to see that God incorporates the Gentiles into the church, something that the Jews didn't know God was going to do. And so they see that begin to take place, they they see God begin to work. So Peter goes back to Jerusalem and says, God's incorporating the Gentiles. And there were some Jews that thought that in order for that to happen, they all had to now obey the law. They should have all these religious restrictions put on them. And so the apostles get together and they begin to pray to decide, is that really true or not? Does God hold Gentiles to the Jewish law since they're not Jews? And um, it basically says that they were of one mind in the decision that they made, which was that, no, God does not hold them to those religious practices in fact, they didn't, he didn't really hold the Jews to him anymore either. In fact, the Apostle Paul obeyed the law when he was with Jews, but didn't have to when he was with Gentiles, and partly because God had fulfilled the law, abolished the law in some respects, not in the sense of putting it aside, but completely fulfilled it. And so there was no need to, 
continue to perform the, the rites and the rituals of the Old Testament law. And so it says that they were of one mind. So we see that in the, in the scriptures that this was something that signified how the apostles thought, how they behaved, what their goals and motivations were. They were of one mind. It's actually a hallmark that we see in the early church as well. It wasn't just the apostles. Maybe it rubbed off on the church. I don't know. But look at Acts chapter 2, verse 46. We're going to see something very similar. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity apart. That's a reference to the church. It says that they were continuing with one mind as they headed to the temple. And so this concept of one-mindedness or single-mindedness is something we see not just in the apostles, but even in the church. Do you know it's something that we're called to as well? I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. In fact, we'll start at verse 14. He says, Bless those who persecute you, and bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Notice this here then. He says, Be of the same mind. That's the same word there. Be of the same mind toward one another. In other words, have single-mindedness with fellow believers. Look at chapter 15 of Romans, chapter 15, verse 5. He says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Paul is instructing the Philippians. He had a lot of positive things to say about the Philippians. Verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whenever I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so we get this concept of one-mindedness that began with, began with the apostles. And it means that they were unified, not just in their thinking, but in their goals, their drives, their desires, their motivations. And it all begins here in this upper room as they come together. And again, this one-mindedness in this passage specifically is tied to how they prayed, which would kind of make sense. Think about this. Their, their lives had been upended, radically changed all of a sudden. For the last three years, they spent time with the Messiah. They expected Jesus to ultimately establish his promised kingdom, that the Messiah had finally come, and that all radically changed at the crucifixion and ascension. And the first thing they do is they come together and they start praying about what to do. So they shared this one-mindedness. Notice the way that it's worded here. It says that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. I love the word that Luke uses here because it designates doing something with intensity. Um, One of my favorite lexicons, which is like a dictionary for Greek words, describes the word this way, to continually do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of doing it despite difficulty. That's the word that he uses to describe the way they prayed. They continually devoted themselves. They worked hard at it. Now, he's talking again about this short window of time, specifically right here. Think about it. How many hours in a day? You go back to Jerusalem. It's not your home. You're waiting. The impression Luke leaves us here is that they spent a lot of time 
over the course of the next nine days waiting for what Christ said would happen by spending it in prayer. Now, if you're anything like me, prayer can be hard sometimes. Especially when you try to do it for a length of time. You know, we're told to pray continuously in the scriptures, Paul says, which is really more of an emphasis on having a mind that you just reference Christ throughout the day. You you pray often. Um, It doesn't mean you have to pray continuously every waking moment of the day. You know, Um, But... Um, if you're like me, I like to set aside my time to pray is usually when I go to bed at night and when I wake up in the morning. And um, you get distracted. <laughs> you know, you start praying about something and the next thing you know you're thinking about the show you watched on television before you went to bed. You know, or, you know, you get up in the morning and you start to pray and you start thinking about all the stuff you've got to do for your day. It takes effort to stay on track, doesn't it? But it also... Sometimes it's hard work just to set the time aside. And I'll be the first to admit, I struggle with that sometimes. I go through these phases where I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I just don't think I'm praying enough. So I kind of, you know, reset the, the clock, so to speak. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get up a little earlier, or I'm going to set my alarm a little earlier, or I'm going to make sure I do this or do that. And then I get distracted. Well, imagine what it must have been like for, for these apostles to be away from home, to be in this upper room, all hanging out together, having their lives upended. And they fill the time praying. I imagine it was hard work. And I think it's why Luke uses this word, that they did it with intensity. Again, that's what the word communicates. Hard. I imagine there were times they probably were falling asleep. You know, how many of you, no matter how awake you are, if you start spending some time in prayer, find yourself getting a little sleepy? Getting the nods. It's hard work sometimes. Um, think about Jesus in the garden. You know, he prayed so hard and he was so in, in distress to such a degree that he began to sweat blood, bursting the capillaries. That's the picture we see is that they were committed to some pretty intense prayer at this time. Now, the question that I would have is why? Why would they spend this time praying so intensely? It's hard to sort of talk about prayer in, in, in a couple of minutes, but if you sort of get your hands around prayer in the New Testament and the Old Testament, there's a number of things that happen when we pray. There's reasons why we should pray. It obviously glorifies God. I'm just going to go through a few of them here. I'm going to rapid-fire some scripture verses. You don't have to write them down. You can if you want to, but... There's a number of things happen when we pray. One of them is that it aligns our will with the Lord's will. Remember when Jesus was teaching his, uh, his apostles to pray, they asked him, teach us to pray. And one of the things he says when he teaches them to pray is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He begins the Lord's prayer by encouraging the disciples that when they pray, to pray that the Lord's will would be done. In other words, align your will with his. Jesus, when he prayed in the garden, said, not my will, but Yours. When we pray, it aligns our hearts and our minds and our will with what the Father wants. You know, we get so, so often we get caught up in praying for the things that we want and the things that we need, and we sometimes fail to think, but you know, ultimately, the reason I pray is because I want what the Lord wants. And so oftentimes you'll hear us when we, when we pray, um, you know, Lord, heal so and so if it's your will. 
And we do that for a reason, to remind us that it's not about what we want, but what the Lord wants. And so when we pray, it helps align us, our will, with the Father's will. I believe that the apostles were doing that at this point. They had been told to go back to Jerusalem to wait to be filled with the Spirit. They would be his witnesses. And now it was a time of saying, okay, Lord, what, what do you have in mind for us? What is that going to mean to be a witness? The other, another thing it does is it reminds us of our dependence on the Father. Also in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, Give us this day our daily bread. It reminds us of our need to be dependent upon the Lord. To know that everything that we receive comes from Him. And so praying reminds us of that. So when we pray for our needs, it's not just about getting our needs, but it should be something that reminds us that, you know what, God takes care of me. He provides for me. Do you think these apostles are going to need that? They gave up their livelihoods. Most of them went on the road. Peter, Paul later. Many, I mean, all of them died martyrs. So it was going to be a new way of life, a new way of having needs met. The Lord is going to have to provide for them, and so I imagine part of their time was, Lord, what are we going to do going forward? We can't go back to our old lives. We can't just be fishermen if we're traveling and being your witnesses. So this time of prayer would have reminded them of their dependence on the Father to provide for them as they were his witnesses. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 18 that it would also help them not lose heart. Do you think that would be important at a time like this? He says this, Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Another reason we pray is so that we don't lose heart, we don't become discouraged. Think about the last year that we've all faced. Do you think prayer through such a difficult time helps us not be discouraged? I mean, everything from the disease floating around out there, you know, everybody at my office has had it except for two people. Actually, three people. I'm one of them. Everybody else except for two people have, as they say, caught the COVID. It gets discouraging, especially when some of them have suffered more than others. You know, Steve Mitchell, you know, pastor friend of ours, died from it, left his wife. It's discouraging to see what's going on around us. What about politically? You know, we look around and we see this stuff going on politically and it's hard. I mean, you got to talk ourselves off the ledge sometimes, don't we? You know? So we pray that we might not lose heart. I would imagine the apostles were praying about not losing heart at this time. What else does it do? Well, it helps them deal with temptation. Jesus said in Luke 24 that when he arrived at a particular place, he said to them, this is the garden, he said, pray that you might, may not enter into temptation. Do you think the apostles were going to face temptation? I mean, one of the first events we see with the apostles is the healing of the lame man as they come to the temple. I'll say on the very first day of them becoming witnesses. It's the day after, it's just right after Pentecost. And immediately they're arrested by the religious leaders. The same people that crucified Christ get all upset simply because 3,000 or 5,000 Jews came to Christ that day. I mean, what could be so upsetting about that for these leaders, right? And immediately they arrest James and John and they threaten them, not just once, but they threaten them twice. Do you think there'd be opportunity for discouragement there? Do you think we have opportunity for discouragement going forward with what we've seen recently? You know, it was interesting. When I was in seminary, I saw this poster on the wall. 
and it had a list of um, the most respected careers in the United States. And it was for, I think, 1980, and then it was for, or I think it was 1970, and then 1990, or whatever it was. And so they had the list. And on the one side, from back in the 70s, um, pastor was, I think, number one or two, most well-respected job, I'll call it that. On the other poster, just 20, 25 years later, it was like number 38. It used to be that Christian values, the Judeo-Christian, the Judeo-Judeo-Christian worldview was respected here in the United States. But now, many of us, when we espouse those things, are called bigots and racists and homophobes and how many other things? Do you think there's an opportunity for us to become discouraged? The apostles were going out into a pretty challenging environment. They had seen Christ crucified, and now they were being told, go back out to the same people that crucified him. So I would imagine praying was their opportunity here to not be tempted, to not be discouraged. It would be easy to say, I'm not going to do this. James and John, when they were arrested, could have said, okay, yeah, we won't, we won't rock, rock the boat here. But they looked at the leaders and they said, yeah, we can't obey you, we've got to obey the Lord. The temptation there would be to obey the leaders. Our temptation may be to shut our mouths. Our temptation may be to try to pacify, to become like them just so they might back off. The other thing, and this also fits with us too, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said this, But I say to you, here, or I'm sorry, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and then get this, pray for those who mistreat you. Another thing that prayer does for us is it helps us deal with our enemies. And we have enemies. I know that's not politically correct to say that. But we do. We have enemies. Jesus Christ said they would hate us because they hated him. We can look all around the world and one of the few places we do not see persecution today of Christians is here in the United States. What we face is not persecution. They dislike us, but it certainly doesn't rise to the level of the persecution we see all over the world. And if you look at any of the research, it is increasing at an astronomical rate. The world hates Christ and Christians. I mean, look at what's happening in China the last 10 years alone. I mean, the Chinese government is on a full frontal attack to stamp out Christianity. They've not hidden it. What are we supposed to do? Pray for them. Pray for our enemies. Why? Christ died for them too, didn't he? So we pray for them. One of the hardest things, I think, for us Christians to do sometimes is when somebody attacks us, is for us to say, you know what? They're just idiots because they don't know Christ. We can't expect them to act any differently. It's time for us to have compassion. Time for us to pray for them. So another thing that prayer does is it Helps us to love our enemies. And isn't it interesting that Christ loved his enemies, us, and was willing to die for us. And so prayer helps us be just like Christ in that respect. 
couple others. I won't spend too much time on this, but Paul said it would help us keep alert. Ephesians chapter 6, he says this, With all prayer and petition, at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Paul basically says that prayer helps keep us alert. Helps keep our eyes watching and seeing what's going on around us. And so we've got all these reasons why the Scriptures tell us to pray. And so here we find the apostles. They just had their life as they knew it shattered. They're about to embark on this new and difficult and challenging mission as witnesses for Christ in a hostile world. And they devote themselves to prayer. They work at it. They spend at least these eight or nine days, it says, devoting themselves, persisting in prayer. It's funny because it doesn't mention anything else they did. It doesn't mean that's all they did, but it's interesting that Luke emphasizes the prayer. I think that becomes a good model for us. I mean, when you think about it, we are an extension of what the apostles did. We are Christ's witnesses. Jesus, when he left this earth, told his disciples, not just his apostles, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. What are we left here for? To make disciples. And it's going to require that we pray. But it's going to require more than just praying. It's going to require that we be devoted to praying, that we work at it, that we dedicate time to it. One of the reasons we have our time at the end of our church service here where we pray, and I know sometimes, you know, it's, we sort of, you know, people share and they, they share their requests and that, and sometimes I'm sure some of us kind of, you know, in the back of our mind are thinking, well, that's kind of a small prayer. Or maybe we wouldn't pray for this or for that. I mean, that's just the general thing you hear from people that are very pious about praying, you know. It doesn't matter. The Lord loves us to just pour out whatever is on our heart. And so we spend time during our service so that we can do that. Because when we first started meeting together, we said, we want to make sure that prayer is not just something we use to transition between songs or just something the pastor does before he, pray, before he preaches. We want it to be something that we as a church family do together to make sure that we remember we have to pray and we pray together as a family. And then when you go home, you can pray for those things as well. And so we take time to do that. It's hard to do in a bigger church, obviously. We have the advantage of being small. And so we do. Whatever small little request is on our hearts or the big request, we share it and we pray and we commit time to it. And so you'll often find we maybe spend 10 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes, maybe sometimes even a little longer doing just that. Because it's important. It's something we should be devoted to. We should work at it. Now the next thing that happens here is they actually go and devote themselves now to the mission. I first thought of these next verses and I thought, really what they're doing here is they're replacing Judas. But that's not really what they're doing. They're actually preparing for their mission. They're praying and then they're preparing for their mission. Look at verses 15 through um, 26. We'll start with verse 15. It says, And at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons were all there gathered together. And then he begins to preach. Now, your text may give the impression that this happened at exactly the same time. That phrase um, that he starts off with at this time is actually a fairly generic phrase that means at some point during these nine days, he got up and began to preach. I'm going to guess it was probably near the end. They had spent time listening to the Lord. They've now got some decisions that they have to make. And so at this time gives the impression maybe that it took place in an upper, upper room. Probably not. It probably took place... One of the later days, probably at another location where they could fit 120 people. Most of the upper rooms in Jerusalem couldn't fit this many people. 
And so, at some point, Peter stands up and begins to uh, teach or to talk to these individuals. Now, there's, what's interesting about this is Peter uses this phrase, and it's going to form the outline for this next little section here. He uses this phrase where it's basically, in one case, it was necessary, and in the second case, it is necessary. And so he's basically standing up and saying, there's something that's required. There's two things that are necessary as we consider moving forward as his witnesses. The first thing that was necessary, he said, was that the scripture had to be fulfilled regarding Judas. Look at verses 16 through 20. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. That's the phrase. It is necessary is the best way to render that in the, in the Greek. It was necessary... The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Ouch. Verse 20, For it's written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. I'm going to stop right there because the... Next phrase goes with the next section, but imagine one of the things that must have been going through the mind of the apostles here. They spent over three years eating, living, growing together, not only in their relationship with Christ, but with each other. This is a close-knit family of 12 individuals. Then one day, all of a sudden, they discover that one of the group, a trusted member, he was their treasurer actually, betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders. And not only that, but led them directly to Jesus to be crucified. One of their own. And that he did it for a measly 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. Peter says in verse 17 that he was counted among us, which means he was a member of the group. He shared in their ministry. They thought he had the same heart and goal and and that that they did. Imagine what they must have been thinking. I mean, that, that's hard. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? It's hard to deal with. You know, you think, man, I thought they... I, what? I, man, you know? And I imagine they were probably suffering a little bit that, with that here. How could Judas do that? But it even gets worse because there's some disturbing details about him. You know, not only, you know, it's one thing to be betrayed by somebody, but you know, when somebody mistreats you or betrays you or treats you improperly, there's usually a certain amount of closure, if you will, to be able to talk with them and confront them, right? They didn't get that opportunity. So not only did this guy betray them, but basically he drops off the face of the earth and there's no, there's not even an opportunity to say, why, why did you do that, Judas? There's not even the opportunity to, to maybe see him re- be remorseful. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll get it. Maybe he'll feel sorry. That it'll offer some comfort. There's not even that. Now, I'll, I'll touch on this just because you may, you may be thinking about it. There's two different accounts of Judas's death. And people say that they don't really line up very well. Um, Matthew and Luke's accounts differ in some details. I'm going to try to smooth this out for us. In Luke's account, um, what we found Ryan, right here in verse 18 and 19 is that Judas acquired a field and then he died in the field and split his head open and his body burst open. 
Look at verses 18 through 19. It says, Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. That's Luke's account. Okay? Matthew's account, which is in Matthew 27, I'll just mention this to you, says that Judas felt remorse and that he actually returned the money, he threw it into the temple, and then he went out and he hung himself. Hung himself. And then it says the Pharisees used that money to buy a field called the potter's field and then they turned it into a cemetery. So the question is, which one of these is right? You know, people will, will argue from this that, oh, that proves the Bible's not accurate and that it's not trustworthy because two different accounts. But when you actually look into the details of it, um, they actually could fit together fairly easily if you look at exactly what's said and exactly what's not said. Luke here doesn't say that Judas went and actually purchased the field himself. It says he acquired it, and in the language can refer to acquiring something even after death. In other words, somebody else purchases something on your behalf. And if you look at the text and the way the the things line up, what likely happened to Judas here is he did feel remorse. He did return, as Matthew said, the money, threw it into the temple. But as a result of that remorse, went back to his property and hung himself. And what happens to a body if you let it sit out in the sun sun, for a period of time? It hangs, stretches. At some point, it it just becomes a mangled mess. You have birds picking at it and animals getting at it. It's going to fall. And it's going to do exactly what's described here. It's going to burst open. And so when you you really look at the text, Matthew gives one emphasis, Luke gives another emphasis, And the field was acquired by the Pharisees with the money that Judas, it belonged to Judas. They paid him with it. The fact that he just threw it back into the temple didn't make it their money. It still was Judas' money. So they took Judas' money, bought a field in his name. He acquired the field. And so, again, the accounts aren't different. They just emphasize different things. So when you think about this, now they not only have to think about the betrayal, but the way that Judas even died um, is a horrific way. From an Old Testament perspective, it was a total degradation of the body. Um, So even from that respect, it condemned Judas essentially. And so they're dealing with that, I would imagine, as well. But yet, Peter, when he discusses this with them, he basically said... It was a requirement. It was necessary. It had to be fulfilled because the scriptures prophesied it. Look at, um, if you will, look at John chapter 13 with me. John chapter 13. This shouldn't really have shocked them because Jesus actually told them what would happen. John chapter 13 Starting at verse 12, this is up in the upper room of the Lord's Supper. So when they had washed their feet and taken their garments and reclined at the table, Jesus said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're all right, for so I am. If then I, the Lord, your teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you, however. I know the ones I have chosen. 
But it's that the scripture may be fulfilled, the same phrase Peter uses, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me, and from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. But did you catch the part there where he basically says, somebody in this group is going to betray me. And he references an Old Testament passage. It's actually from Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. It's a psalm where David is referring to a close advisor, Ahithophel. It's a close personal advisor. He had betrayed David. And what Jesus does here is he references that scripture in kind of an interesting way. There is scripture in the Old Testament that would be referred to as direct prophecies about something, meaning it's specifically an event that will occur. However, there are times in the New Testament where an author will reference an Old Testament passage of Scripture as a fulfillment, but it's not a direct fulfillment. That's what Jesus does here. It's called typological fulfillment. What that means is this. Jesus is saying, just like Ahithophel, David's closest advisor, betrayed him, Judas betrayed me as well. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. In other words, it's fulfilled in kind of the same way. It doesn't mean that David was talking about Judas. David was talking about Ahithophel. But Jesus, and even Peter here, in the way that Peter quotes scripture, uses the Old Testament passages to say, just like, Judas is just like Ahithophel. He was close to David, and he betrayed him. And because of that, in a sense, it's fulfilled scripture. And so that's what Jesus did. And so, when we go back to Acts, it shouldn't have surprised them But both Peter and Jesus said that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. That this was something that was known. This is something that um, had to happen. John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus also said the scripture has to be fulfilled. He's talking about the son of perdition there, meaning Judas. We know that Judas had to betray Christ because that's ultimately the way that Christ's crucifixion came about. We sit back and we wonder sometimes how, but the reality of it is Christ had to die to pay the penalty for our sins. That had to happen. And so Judas, what he did was a fulfillment of the scriptures. Peter, if you go back to verse 20 now in our passage, says, For it's written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. That's actually David again, Psalm chapter 69, referring to Ahithophel, referring to God judging his enemies. And so in some respects, what Peter's saying here is that even the way that Judas died and his legacy was basically desolate was also fulfillment of scriptures. That's what happens to God's enemies. They're left with nothing. And so what's the point of of this part of it? Peter basically, as he's looking at what happened with Judas and the discouragement of all that reminds the people in the upper room this was required. This is the fulfillment. Jesus told us it would happen. The Old Testament scriptures allude to it happening. It was necessary. Sometimes I think we might struggle with that. You know, we think about as we march toward God's fulfillment 
of his redemptive plan for mankind, we kind of know the end of the story. We know where it's going, don't we? You know, Paul warns of what's going to happen with the church and apostasy within the church, and um, we're warned about people stacking up teachers to tickle their ears, which talks a lot about how the, the church will gradually over time struggle um, with its theology and its false teachings and other things. We look at the book of Revelation, we see how the end times all play out. We kind of know where it's going, and these things are necessary. Why? Part of God's plan to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. And sometimes when we see those things, we get discouraged, don't we? We look at what's happening here. I had a conversation with somebody the other day about the United States, and he's like, do you really think that maybe you know we're not going to ever be the great nation that we were before, at least from a Judeo-Christian standpoint? And I said, I don't know, because I don't know if there'll be a great revival. But you know what? You know where we're headed. This is the way God's plan works out. It's necessary. And we struggle with that sometimes. But Peter's reminding them that this is not out of God's control. This was all something that God told us about. Something that Jesus warned us about. Judas' betrayal is nothing that just shocks God. It was necessary. And ultimately, in the end, it's all good, right? Because it led to the redemption of mankind. The second thing that Peter said was necessary is what they do actually next, and this will kind of wrap it up for us. Start at verse 20 again. Look at the second half of verse 20. David quotes from another psalm, a different one. Actually, I'm sorry, that's uh, from Zechariah. Let another man take his office. Therefore, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So basically what Peter says here is it's necessary that we replace Judas. It's not real clear why. You know, some people said, well, it's because there were 12. And they just had to fill the 12th position. I believe that the reason Peter says it's necessary here is because Jesus had commissioned them to be witnesses. And notice that what he says here about the individual, the qualifications for who this new witness is supposed to be. He says it's somebody that actually has to have been somebody who had been with them since the beginning. He needed to have witnessed everything that they did about Christ. That, make, that makes sense. If this individual is going to fill Judas's position, has to be somebody that understands and had to have been there for the teaching that Christ had given. But you notice that it doesn't say he has to be a witness. It says, verse 22, he must become a witness. Did you catch that? That's forward-looking, isn't it? He must become a witness. Well, Jesus told the apostles, you will be my witnesses. Not you are my witnesses, but you will be. What's a witness? In many respects, it's an evangelist. It's somebody who goes out and witnesses. And so really what they're doing here is Peter is saying, we need somebody to join us to go out and to be a witness because that's what Christ has called us to. Now, he may have felt that way, that they needed somebody because 
Jesus chose 12. And it kind of makes sense, because even as you look at end time events, we're told that the apostles will reign on 12 thrones, representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We as Gentiles get grafted into the church. There's all kinds of theological nuances here that maybe were floating around in Peter's head as a good Jew. But the most important thing, Peter said, is if we're going to go out and be witnesses, we need as many as we can get. We need to fill Judas's spot. And this man needs to be somebody who not only witnessed Christ, but will become a faithful witness going forward. Somebody we can trust to go out with us, put his life on the line, and witness the resurrection of Christ going forward. And so what we really find here is not just replacing Judas. What we actually find here is that they're preparing for the mission that Jesus had called them to. They're making sure they've got a full team, if you will. You know, you can't go out on the football field if you don't have enough men, right? It's kind of hard if you go out on the baseball diamond. You've got enough to fill all the spots, but don't have somebody to catch the ball at the mound or somebody to play first base. And in Peter's mind, he's saying, gentlemen, it's necessary that we prepare because we've been called to be his witnesses. And people have said, oh, yeah, but they were acting on their own because we never hear of Matthias again. We don't hear of a lot of the apostles again. We hear of Peter and Paul and a couple others. But God is clearly involved with all of this. They're praying about it. They ask the Lord for help. They cast lots, which was an acceptable thing in the Old Testament to be able to determine God's will. I don't suggest any of you go out and cast dice. But God is obviously involved with this. And he satisfies their request by providing an answer, Matthias. And so they assign Matthias in the place of Judas. So what do we actually do with all of this? Um, I know there's a lot of details, and and we look at this and um, ask, what, what, what do we do with it? I think there's two primary things for me as I look at this. The first one, the first thing that I walk away with as I look at this, is how seriously they took prayer. And again, that's a challenge to me. Um, I think that's an area where we oftentimes struggle as a church just in general. Um, especially praying the way that I've already kind of mentioned with seeing it as a, a way to align ourselves with the Lord's will and praying that we might not be discouraged and instead of just selfish prayers, if I can call it that. You know, oftentimes our prayers are very self-focused. Prayer is the tool that God gave us to align ourselves with Him to not be discouraged, to be motivated, encouraged, to go out and to do the things that he wants us to do. And the disciples were serious about that, and so they committed themselves to do that. And we'll see that in the rest of Acts. In fact, in Acts chapter 6, when the church has grown to the point where they're now having internal problems and struggling, and they're trying to meet everybody's needs, and so some of the people come to the apostles and say, we can't meet everybody's needs! And they say, you know what? You guys need to take care of that problem because us as apostles have two responsibilities. Remember what they were? Teaching, and what was the second one? Prayer. The apostles said, our job is to pray. And essentially they said, we can't wait tables because then we can't pray. Simply meaning that they were so dedicated to praying that they weren't allowing anything else to obstruct from that, take them away from that. That's the heart and soul of the church. 
If we are not devoted to prayer, praying diligently, persistently, hard, even when we're tired, even when we don't want to, even when we forget, then the church is ineffective. And so that is one impression for me, is that we need to take that seriously, just like they did. The second thing is how seriously they took their mission. They prepared. There's not a lot of details in there, except that they knew that Judas had left, and that Jesus had said, I want 12. They saw Judas bail on that, and one of the first things they do is to say, well, it was necessary that that happen, but now it's necessary for us to prepare. And so they, they ask God for help, they, they look at individuals, they evaluate them on what's necessary, but the emphasis is placed on the fact that we need somebody who will go out and be our witness with us. They took their mission very seriously. I think that's where we struggle as a church, and I don't specifically mean us here necessarily, but just the church in general. Um, we do a lot of things. You know, social club type things. The church has lost its influence in the United States. You look at um, Barna research and Pew research and Lifeway research. We're one of the few places where the church is shrinking. It's growing in places like China. In fact, when you look at the top 40 list of the most persecuted countries in the nation, the church is growing faster in many of those than it is here. In fact, in many of those places, the church is growing faster than the population is growing. I don't know how seriously we really take the mission because we have oftentimes other missions, other things we do as churches that distract us. Our mission is to make disciples. That's the goal. They took it seriously. 